It's Daily Thunder, thundering out the truth of Jesus Christ live every morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more about our discipleship programs or to support this podcast, visit ellerslie.com. Now, here's Eric Levy. Good morning, everyone. Uh, Happy Harper uh, Ludy's birthday. Uh, She uh, turns 13 today. Can you believe that? I remember when she came home from Korea, she was this little munchkin with a little uh, sort of uh, mohawk uh, thing on the top, and she was so precious. I've been telling her about that. I keep remembering uh, how cute she was. She's still cute, I have to admit, even at 13, but she was just a little pile of, uh, you know, something you want to squish and, and pinch. And so it's it's really sort of shocking and fun to think of her being 13 today. Can you? I have two teenagers. What in the world's going on in the Ludi home? So it's it's a pretty special day for us. Uh, we're going through a series uh, right now. Uh, I have one more episode in the series, which will be this Friday, but uh, it's it's a four-part series, and I call it "Defying the Enemy Voices." And on Friday last, uh, we went through uh, the voice of despair, and on Monday, we went through the voice of diminishment, and today is the voice of pride. And you know, I've gone back and forth on if pride is the best way of describing this, but because it's a little misleading. When we think of pride, we think of arrogance and uh, haughtiness, when in actuality, I'm going to emphasize more of just self interest, self-protection, self-justification. It's the preservation of self. And the devil knows that if he can get you with a change of focus from Christ-focus to self-focus, from Christ-protection to self-protection, from defending the honor and the glory of Jesus to justifying self, he has eliminated your effectiveness as a Christian. And so as a result, this is a tactical maneuver by the enemy that I just want to expose uh, this morning and just walk through. Because I I am familiar with it. The devil has spent a good deal of time in my life attempting me to focus, uh, attempting to get me to focus on myself. As I know for all of us in here, that's very likely the case as well. So 1 Peter 5, 8 through 9 has sort of been a theme uh, for this series. Be sober. Be vigilant, which means watchful, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. So most of us don't think of the pestering voices of the enemy as suffering. We think of, you know, you have to be tortured or you have to be falsely accused to to suffer, when in actuality there are low-level versions of suffering that um, are actually tremendously difficult to walk through. And I would say the pestering voices of the enemy that are are like a constant drip can be a a very extreme form of suffering in in many of our lives. And that's why I think it's interesting to say, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. Most of us have a tough time describing this dimension of our life because the devil works hard to get us to think that these are our own thoughts. These are our own imaginations when instead of recognizing that he's actually supplying them and we then have to deal with them. We're not the ones that shot that fire arrow at our soul, but we do need to repel it. 
And so that key phrase, resist him, steadfast in the faith, the equivalent in Ephesians 6, would be hold up your shield of faith and quell that fiery arrow. These arrows are being shot at all the brothers. We need to understand this battle and we need to know how to win it. So this is an overview of the series that we're going through. Four specific enemy voices. Number one, the voice of despair. Number two, the voice of diminishment. Three, today's message, the voice of pride. And then on Friday, I'm going to cover the voice of fear. Now, there are many more voices uh, we could bring out. However, these are four that I want to just focus on in this little mini-series. We have a semester starting on Saturday, so sometimes the length of series can be defined by key transition points in Ellerslie uh, uh, in the Ellerslie world, and that is the case in this one. I, I'm just limiting it to four voices. These are four that I have come to know very well, whether we could say fortunately or not. You know, I, I'd like to say yes, because I've gone through this, I do know about them, and I can speak on them. Uh, Job's singular failure. Job is heralded at the very beginning of the book of Job as being quite the man. And God seems to go out of his way uh, to Satan, which it's a strange encounter, and brag about Job. Have you considered my servant Job? And all of us just hope that God doesn't bring our name up in conversation with the devil for, with the same intent. Have you considered my servant Eric? It's like, no, no, don't go there, God. And it's an interesting story. Most of us try and skip the book of Job. It's, it's a somewhat of a difficult book to go through. Uh, first of all, it's hard to comprehend. That's, that's uh, a, a definite truth. Uh, but what this man goes through, we don't want to touch uh, with a 10-mile pole. I mean, this is, this is like tough stuff. And I, I think it's, it's important to recognize that Job is very purposefully given. God, God has all sorts of books that could be included in the Bible. But they're, they're just human writings. This is a divine one. This is put together to be included in the canon of Scripture on purpose. Uh, Job, his name uh, in the Hebrew, Eob, uh, means uh, hated and despised. Uh, that's a strange way to name a child. And uh, Uz, U-Z, which is where he's from, Uz, we'd say it Uz, uh, but Uz, uh, actually means the place of wood which is really strange, hated and despised place of wood. You see a Christophany in that. You see the cross of Jesus even in this man's life, and the suffering is not in vain. There is something, that, and that's a key parallel, something is being revealed to us. First of all, we recognize the devil is making a move on Job. And so if you actually lay out the, the, the terrain of this, uh, this book, you see, okay, the devil is the one that's actually doing it. However, Job makes a mistake, though he is innocent, if you want to say it that way, of the crimes that all of his friends seem to accuse him of. It's like, you must have done something, Job. He didn't do any of that. However, he does make a mistake. In all of this battle, in all of this suffering, his mistake is that he justifies himself. And when I look deeper at that, I recognize that is probably the singular failure that I have had in my life too. Because when I started to go through sufferings, it shocked my soul, it really did. I, I don't know that I can say I've gone through Job level sufferings, but you know, a lot of my sufferings have been very, very extreme and difficult. 
And I found myself when that voice, there's a voice, and we can call it Job's friends, that says, you must have done something. I mean, Eric, you must have a flaw. You must have actually baited this person to accuse you uh, that way. And what I found myself rising up and doing is saying, I, I didn't do anything. And staring back at myself, trying to justify my cleanliness instead of focusing on Jesus. You see, the enemy wants to take our gaze off of the one who does justify us, the one who is righteous, because technically we are all flawed. And yes, you know, the devil has a pretty good argument. We don't deserve any good treatment at all. And so to know how to handle that accusation, that difficulty, that suffering, when the voices around us begin to accuse us, is a very, very significant thing. Job's singular failure, he defended himself. And so now you see the cross and you see a new pattern. Jesus doesn't even open his mouth. It's a a really interesting parallel. You have the hated and despised in the place of wood, and you see Jesus do it right. Job, in a sense, failed. I don't want to say in totality he failed, but he didn't do it perfectly, whereas Jesus is going to handle his suffering without turning towards self-interest, self-protectiveness, self-justification, without allowing pride to rule in the situation. The operation of pride, what is its goal? Its goal, the goal of pride or self-interest, self-focus, self-justification is to cause thought of self to displace thought of Christ and thought of others. It is, it's a fascinating tactic of the enemy. We, before we come to Christ, we really only know self-thought. That's what we think about all day long. So when we come to Christ, there is a shift. There is a change. We begin to notice Christ. We begin to notice Christ's agenda. We begin to adopt Christ's purpose, which is all outward. Christ's purpose isn't just to stroke self, to tell self it's all wonderful and great. It's not about self-esteem. It's about Christ-esteem. And Christ knows that we will be cared for best when we turn outward. We will thrive and function according to his creation and his design when we are not self-focused. So he draws us outward and he shows us his face, his glory, his love, his kindness, his mercy. And then he shows us the ones he loves. So he says, do you see them? Do you see the lost one over there? Yes. I want you to see my love for them. I want you to see my value that I've placed on them. I shed my blood for them. Do you see that, Eric? And he turns us outward. And as we begin to appraise his value system, we actually begin to thrive. And we become strong in our spiritual life. So what the enemy oftentimes will do is he'll bait us to turn inward again, to see us. And so how he does that is, I mean, there's a thousand schemes uh, for it. However, he wants to bait us in some regard to begin to consider us. Like, accusation's a great one. Someone accuses you of something, and you have a tendency to then need to justify yourselves. Hey, hey, look, that's not, that's not correct. And so then we begin to search. Uh, and I don't know if you've ever, ever gone through a season in your spiritual life where someone has said something about you, like, you just think you're so important, you and your Jesus, and it's all about you. It's all about you. And here you were, maybe even trying to serve, trying to wash feet. But then in your prayer times, what are you thinking about the whole time? God, is it true? Am I all about me? And you're like all focused in where you were to take the eyes of your soul. You recognize that you're looking at you. And that's the whole goal of the enemy. 
It's very difficult to have someone accuse you and you keep your focus on Jesus because you want to know if it's true. And so how do you know if it's true unless you turn inward and begin to examine? It's a very interesting process to go through. So the operation of pride is to cause thought of self to displace thought of Christ and thought of others. Now, if, if we were to go to the extreme other end of pride, the arrogant, haughty guy who's always thinking about himself, yeah, he's not thinking about Christ and he's not thinking about others. But that's usually not what we're dealing with in the church. Uh, well, I'm sure there's sectors of the church. In the, the type of church gatherings that we have, we have a whole bunch of people that desire to serve Jesus, desire to thrive in Jesus. Our desire is not to think about self, however we're vulnerable to it. The foreword to the book. I have a subtitle under this one. I'm not an idiot and I'm going to prove it. Some of you may have heard this story before, but it's, it just sort of exemplifies. When I was going through the preparation on this, I have so many different things that have happened in my life where I have sort of pulled the job and I've self-justified or I've said, that's not, that's not right. I shouldn't be suffering for this. That's an incorrect assessment of my life. And one of the times I made the mistake of going onto Amazon and reading some reviews. Okay, now that, it's just, if you ever write a book, just don't do that. Okay, and I would always encourage everyone in here to never Google yourself. It does not do you any good. Now, some people would not come up and maybe that would then discourage you at a whole nother level, okay? So, but the point is, it doesn't do you any good to read your reviews. On either front, if they are positive, it can go to your head and create a different form of pride. If they're negative, it can go to your head <laughs> in a totally different way and get you focused inward in a, in a whole different way. And so, I was reading this one review, and this person hated me. This person hated my books. They said they all say the same thing. They have no imagination. And they're, you know, the guy that's writing this stuff is an idiot. What do you mean I'm an idiot? And I have no vocabulary. I'm like writing for like little kids. Okay? And, you know, so in my mind, I'm thinking, what? Just because I am writing in simpler language so that my audience can understand me doesn't mean I don't have a vocabulary. It doesn't mean I don't have an IQ. And so I, <laughs> I mean, I'm trying to hold myself together, but there's a grievance that is now taking place. And so I, at the time, was writing a foreword for one of my books. I don't remember which one it was. But uh, I, I remember I just, uh, I brought out my best and biggest words in this foreword. And I was going to prove to the world that Eric was not an idiot uh, and this was going to be my evidence. And so my uh, editor uh, received this. <clears throat> and he got back and he said, Eric, well, it's quite the forward. I needed a dictionary to read it. And I'm thinking, yeah, that's right, you did. You know, because I have so much vocabulary that I, you know, I can just wield it any way I want. He says, but uh, are you sure, you know, who is your audience for this? Who are you actually <laughs> writing this to? And I'm thinking, there is one reviewer on Amazon that I'm writing for. You see, that is just not the way we play this game. Uh, and so for me, that's a typification of what the enemy can do. I'll show you. If you've ever had it where you've had someone diminish your life, someone who has discouraged you, someone who has said you'll never amount to anything, there is a huge bait in there to actually live your life for them instead of for Jesus Christ. I'll show them. Why are you actually doing what you're doing? Because they need to see that I matter. 
Actually, God has already placed value on you. He's already solved that riddle. You don't need to play for anyone. You are righteous in him. You are justified by his blood. You are welcomed into the beloved. You don't need to prove anything to anyone. You are in Christ. Your identity is found in him. Sounds so easy when I say it, but it's not always that easy in those moments. And many of us have chips on our shoulders from young ages where someone said this one thing and we hearken back to it in our thinking. We're like, if I could just accomplish this, then I would spite them. That's just not a healthy way to live. And it actually keeps us in bondage. So the voice of pride, it says all sorts of things, but here's some concepts. What does it say? You didn't deserve that. You know, it's the voice of self-pity right around the edges of it. And remember, self-interest, self-focus, self-justification, self-pity. Okay, these are baits. They're traps for the soul. They should have been more considerate of you. Other people don't face such obstacles. Why is it that you have such difficulties in your life? These people seem to have it easy. Okay, what's happening? You're reflecting inward. Instead of thinking about the sufferings of Christ, you're thinking about the sufferings of you. This is unfair. Protect yourself. Defend yourself. Grab the advantage. But how would that benefit you? Okay, you're sitting in a meeting and everyone's talking. And How would that benefit you, though? You see, it's a real interesting tension because people can take advantage of Christians because they know we're supposed to be outward right? However, we as Christians have a tendency to not really like the fact that people can know that we're supposed to be outward, especially in ministry we can be taken advantage of. Eric could come up to you. We have quite a few staff people in here, and I could say, uh, we have a job description for you. And then you, of course, as the good Christian, should say, yes, sir, I will get that done. However, how would that benefit me? Okay, that is a constant bait for every one of us at a certain level. There is a a statement that Paul uses, I really like it when it translates it, that we are to seek another person's wealth, to seek another person's advantage. Who does that? But that's a Christian. We don't live for our own advantage. We actually live for the advantage of Christ, his glory, his gospel, and for those he loves and gave his life for. So our response, and I've given this same scripture in each one of these episodes, What is our response to this movement of the devil against us, this bait? Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. There is a weaponry that we have. There is an arsenal of strength that we can stand in, and that is the person of Jesus Christ. Now, that might sound like an overly patent, simplistic answer. It's still the truth, and I'm going to go into a little more detail in it. The self-focused Christian is the anti-Christian Christian. You cannot be self-focused and function as a Christian. Now, let me clarify. You can be self-focused and be a Christian, but you're not a functional Christian when you're self-focused. So the moment you become self-focused is the moment you're not able to allow God to work through your life. You're literally stymied up. It's like damming up the waters. So yes, you still may be a Christian, but you're not functioning as one right now. You're actually doing what is opposite of Christianity, and that is you are amplifying self, which the key to Christianity, as we all know, is to deny self, to put self into a subservient position to the rule of Christ and to the rule of the Spirit. 
And so the self-focused Christian is, in a strange way, the anti-Christian Christian. The self-focused Christian is a self-preserving, self-justifying, and self-promoting Christian. And that doesn't make sense. There is no such thing as that. So what we are actually doing is we are countering the very work of grace when we begin to turn inward, which is why we need an extra measure of sensitivity to that turn of soul. You must not become the self-focused Christian. There is a story, and I, it, it wasn't John praying hide, and I, I wish I could remember it, because I threw this in at the last minute just because it had such a standout character to me in my own development. But when I was reading through the book, and I, I don't remember, do you guys remember when the name of the book is just called John Praying Hyde? Uh, and it's his uh, biography. And great uh, story. I think it's Norman, what, what, no, it wasn't Norman Grubb. Who wrote that one? I can't remember either. Well, I'm not doing very, a very good promo for it. But it's a very powerful uh, book. It's had a significant impact on my life. There's this one story uh, he worked as a missionary over in India. And this one person had been violated. They had been hurt uh, in their stand for Christ. And they had suffered. And they had spent weeks praying about this. And just sort of wrestling through, like, God, what is right in what was said about me? What, is there anything in my soul that I need to deal with? Is there anything? And the correction came that the focus, the, the main error and the main crime that they're committing is that they've lost sight of Christ and they're focused on self and what is wrong with self. And for me, even that exercise in hearing that story, because I could so easily go into that, because you feel spiritual when you are examining yourself. And you're just like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to dig deep and I'm going to find out if there's anything. One of the key things that I've learned to do in my spiritual life is it's not the opposite of examining, sort of because that is a scriptural uh, command for us to examine ourselves. However, the way we examine ourselves is by keeping our focus on Christ. In other words, we take our gaze, fix it on Jesus, his gaze then turns inward. He sees things and he convicts us of them. He like lifts it up before our gaze and he says, Eric, could we deal with that? Yes, Lord. But I don't take my focus off of Christ in order to do it. I trust that Christ can convict. And so if I keep my focus on Christ, I have a confidence that he loves me enough to bring things to the surface. And so if he's not bringing it to the surface, I'm not going to go digging for it. I'm not going to go fishing for things that he is not bringing to the surface. And in due time, I tell you what, my God is very faithful to unearth things in my life. Things that have been there for years, he can suddenly at the perfect time just bring to the surface. I'm like, wow, God, thank you for that. He's very, very good at what he does. For all of us, we are susceptible to having a weak conscience and actually pursuing our own righteousness, our own sanctification, instead of resting in him to do it. So our key spiritual tools. I gave you in the first two episodes the tools, remember my R's that I went through? They were a really cool list of R's, and a few of them didn't start with R, so I made it look like they started with R. Remember wrestle uh, was one of my R's, but I had to make the W uh, really small, so it was like wrestle. But here's a different list. Now, there's so many. The whole Bible is actually an enunciation of how to stand in the 
life of Christ as opposed to in the life of self. So I feel like I'm tackling too big of an issue when I start to say, oh, here are some spiritual tools because there's loads of them. But the Bible simply says, humble yourself. And to humble yourself in light of this, it's like to not allow your soul to be baited by the enemy. You see, the only, I remember this one uh, pastor was giving a message on denial of self, and he was calling us, he said, we're supposed to be dead men, basically. We're not, and if you're a dead man, you don't go to some guy that's laying in a coffin, come up to him and, you know, offend him. Uh, He doesn't, he can't get offended. He can't uh, be harmed because he's dead. And so you can yell at this dead guy all day long, you know, cast slurs against him, accuse him of things, and you're going to notice he's not moved and ruffled in the, in the least. He says, that's, that's the way we are supposed to be. Our old man cannot be resurrected by those harassing words. And so as a result, I, you know, I've thought about that many times. So it's a great enunciation of humble yourself. Just be dead. It's okay. Let Christ be your life. Relinquish your rights. It's when we start to hold on to things that we have a tendency to feel the pangs of losing them. Freshly take the lowest seat at the table. Have you ever noticed that, you know, say this room is, it, it was ranked in order of priority and value. And so you start at the, you know, the back seat. And you're like, yes, I, I, I recognize that. And then over time, you find yourself sort of creeping upward. And this is just how it oftentimes works. We move up in seats. Maybe we don't ever take the head seat, right? Because we know that that's not a good idea. But we've somehow moved up. And this is just very easy. Because in life, there are roles that we play where we need to be over people, and it's actually appropriate and right. But when you get those roles, do you actually think of yourself now as more valuable? And you can tell because you can move up in a seat, and if someone comes up to you and says, hey, could you do this very lowly job over here? You're like, I'm above that. For all of us to freshly today just take the lowest seat. Remember the low place Jesus took. Well, that should do it for all of us. In other words, if we're like, hey, why should I take such a low seat? Well, just remember Jesus. Do you remember the seat Jesus took? And he was king of all kings? Yeah, that that should do it for us. That's a good elixir. Consider others more important than yourself. As, as As a rule of thumb, if you treat others around you as royalty, and you treat yourself as a butler or as a servant, it's amazing how that transforms your perspective. Pick up your cross and follow Jesus. When you pick up a cross, you're heading to your death. You're denying your agenda in life. You're giving up your way of doing things. You're giving up your wealth, your future ambitions, and you're taking on God's. You see, if you're picking up your cross, you're not seeking your own. You're not seeking your way of doing things. You're not seeking a high reputation. Jesus was not seeking his you know, to look good in people's eyes by picking up that cross. He was willing to be mocked and ridiculed and look lowly to follow his father's lead. And for all of us to humble ourselves in the same manner is extremely important. Turn outward and consider the needs of others. There's a story that Jackie Pollinger uh, used to share about this woman who had been a prostitute for, I don't know, around 50 years and she was a heroin addict. Her life was a wreck, and she had so many people she had injured, so many things that she had done wrong. And so when she came to Christ, it was a genuine conversion, and she was radically saved, set free from heroin. It was a beautiful story, right? But she 
would sit down every day with Jackie and just start unpacking 50 years of sin. And Jackie was just like, this is going to take forever. <laughs> because she's walking through all this minutiae. The Spirit of God is like shining light on. It's there. And so Jackie was praying. It's like, what do I do for someone with so much compacted difficulty, shame, abandonment, suffering in their life? How do they get renewed? How do they walk through all this and see it all converted? What, what do you do? And so the secret was that this woman needed to just start serving people. And so she began every day to wake up early and just serve all the other people uh, in the walled city of Hong Kong. And it's amazing, but in weeks she was a completely new person. It was like all of that was just shed. And she was free to now think Christ's thoughts, to live the Christ life. And so for each of us, we might not be at that extremity of 50 years of being a prostitute and living in such darkness and evil. However, what, no matter where we're at, our elixir is to actually turn outward and consider the needs of others and not meditate upon ourselves. It is just so easy to think about us because, I mean, there's a lot going on here. And yes, we have a lot of needs. We have a lot of challenges. We have a lot of burdens. And yet the secret to handling those burdens is not to meditate and just focus on our burdens, but to focus on Jesus' burdens. God, what, what is on your heart today? Most of us fail to remember that he has a burden today. We just assume that his burden is going to be our burden. I mean, I, I, God, you know that I have, have this key thing going on today, so I know you're burdened about that, so that's what we're going to talk about. As opposed to saying, God, I'm going to set my burdens over here. What's your burden? Because that's really what I want to attend to today. And that's an elixir. That's a freedom point from the voice of self-interest. The voice of self-interest will do us in. It'll do us in from one angle or another if we cater to it. So what is our scriptural ground? Can the operation of pride really stand against God's word? Uh, what do you think the answer is to that? So God's word is very, very clear, actually, on this voice. And he actually gives his clear assignment to defy it. Then said Jesus unto his disciples, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross, and follow me. For whosoever will save his life, this is in Luke 9, shall lose it. But whosoever will lose his life for my sake, the same shall save it. This is a backwards way of thinking. Instead of clinging to life, justifying life, protecting life, it's spending it. It's giving it up. And if you give it up, God says, I'll protect it for you. It's a weird pattern in our mind because we're self-focused. And if you're self-focused, the only way to maintain self is to cling. And God says, Look, I care about you. I care about yourself, if you want to say it that way. But as long as you care about yourself, this isn't working. I need you to let me care about yourself. You, meanwhile, care about me, my purposes, and what I'm focused on. If you do that, I will care for you. Luke 14, 8 through 11. When you are invited by anyone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in the best place, lest one more honorable than you be invited by him. And he who invited you and him come and say to you, give place to this man. And then you begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit down in the lowest place, so that when he who invited you comes, he may say to you, friend, go up higher. Then you will have glory in the presence of those who sit at the table with you. The key line, for whoever exalts himself will be humbled. But he who humbles himself 
will be exalted. The key to growth in the kingdom of heaven, the key to position in the kingdom of heaven is actually through letting go of self-interest. It's, it's totally backwards. You don't seek a higher seat. You actually seek a low seat. God takes care of you. James 4.10 says, Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. John 13.14, If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Now just imagine if you had that as your mentality going into the day. Jesus, how did you live out your day? Well, he was, he's our Lord and teacher, and yet how did he spend his day? He spent his day washing feet, if you want to say it that way. And so we ought to wash feet as well. Who is this Lord and teacher that has come serving? Now here's, as far as I'm concerned, one of the best ways biblically to deal with the voice of pride is not just to take the key commands that say, yeah, don't do that, but to actually meditate upon who it is that came and humbled himself and became a worm and no man. And if he came from that high and lofty position and he came that low to serve, and now he lives inside of us, he's given us everything we need to actually follow. So who is this Lord and teacher? God, my God has measured the waters of this earth in the hollow of his hand, meted out heaven with a span, comprehended the dust of the earth in a measure, weighed the mountains and the scales and the hills in a balance. To him the nations are as a drop in a bucket and are counted as a small dust of the balance. That's Isaiah 40, 12. So this God that humbled himself is sovereign, almighty, all-knowing. I mean, and he humbled himself. I am... None of these things, even close. And yet he says, look, I want to show you how to walk this out. That voice shall not rule you. When he heads off to war, there are none that can stay his hand. That's Daniel 4.35. He sits as king between the mighty cherubim, above all, over all, and in control of all. The creator of the heavens and the earth, God of all the kingdoms of this earth. That's Isaiah 37.16. He can bind the sweet influences of Pleiades and loose the bands of Orion. He can set the dominion of his ordinances in the earth. He can send forth lightning, number the clouds, and stay the bottles of heaven, Job 38. He is the mighty God, Isaiah 9, 6. The everlasting God, Isaiah 40, 28. Overall, God blessed forever, Romans 9, 5. The God of the whole earth, Isaiah 54, 5. And his throne is forever and ever, Hebrews 1, 8. He is the almighty which is, which was, and which is to come, Revelation 1, 8. The creator of all things, Colossians 1, 16. The upholder of all things, Hebrews 1, 3. The father of eternity, Isaiah 9, 6. The beginning and the ending, Revelation 1, 8. The alpha and the omega, Revelation 1, 8. The first and the last, Revelation 1, 17. He is the rock of ages, Isaiah 26, 4. The head of every man, 1 Corinthians eleven three. The head of all principality and power, Colossians 2, 10. Lord of lords, Revelation 17, 14. Lord both of the dead and living, Romans 14, 9. Lord of all, Acts 10, 36. Lord over all, Romans 10, 12. He is the prince of princes, Daniel 8, 25. The prince of all the kings of the earth, Revelation 1, 5. He that filleth all in all, Ephesians 1, 23. The king of of kings, Revelations 19.16. The righteous judge, 2 Timothy 4.8. The king of saints, king of nations, Revelation 15.3. King over all the earth, Zechariah 14.4 and 5 and 9. King of glory, Psalm 24.10. Crowned with many crowns, Revelation 19.12. And he sitteth king forever, Psalm, Psalm 29.10. And before him, all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. And he does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say unto him, What doest thou? Daniel 4.35 Before the mountains were brought forth or, he, or ever he had formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, he was God. Psalm 91-2 through 2. 
When the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel against him, he shall laugh and shall hold them in derision. Psalm 2, 2 through 4. He is bound by nothing but his own nature and his own law. He is not limited in power nor governed in action by the will or the pleasure of any angel, demon, or man. But rather he is limited and governed only by the dictums and restraints of his loving prerogative to gain for himself a peculiar people. Titus 2, 14. To establish his kingdom in the, this earth, Matthew 6, 10, and to shed abroad his glory unto the heathen, Ezekiel 39, 21. And in the not-so-distant future when he will return to bring terrible judgment to nations and his feet shall touch down on Mount Olivet and see it divide asunder, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. Philippians 2.10 And all will behold the Ancient of Days whose eyes are as a flame of fire, whose voice is as the sound of many waters, and whose countenance is as the sun shining in all its strength. Revelation 1, 14 through 15. They will see the fiery stream issuing forth from before him, the thousand thousands ministering unto him, and the ten thousand times ten thousand that stand before him at the judgment. Daniel 7, 9 through 10. And all will behold the one at whose feet all crowns will be cast, for he is worthy to receive glory and honor and power, for he has created all things, and for his pleasure they are and were created. Revelation 4, 10 through 11. So in concert with the noble King David, I pronounce, Thine, O Lord, is the greatness and the power, and the glory, and the victory, and the majesty. For all that is in the heaven and in the earth is thine. Thine is the kingdom, O Lord, and thou art exalted as head above all. First Chronicles 29, 11. If you focus on the grandness of Jesus, you lose sight of you. And that is the great secret of Christianity, to fight the enemy voice of self-interest. Remember Jesus. Remember his glory. Remember that this is about him and not about you. Remember that all things center on him and his reputation and that you are willing to spend your reputation that his reputation would be maintained. You're willing to give up your life that he would be known. This is how Christianity flourishes. The enemy wants to deter us into thinking about ourselves. We need to fight back. Remember I've mentioned this each time, the judo move. Leveraging the enemy's evil movements against him. So when he comes in with the bait towards self-interest, that we actually flip him. The bigger he is, the wider he is, the heavier he is, the harder he is going to fall. So a well-handled judo move on the voice of pride. It can help the Christian regain and regrip the beauty and glory of Jesus. His great importance and the fact that his reputation is really the only one that matters. If you've ever had your reputation attacked, it is very difficult not to defend it. And yet at that very moment of vulnerability, when you turn and instead choose to defend the, the, the nature of Jesus, which is what Job didn't do, instead of defending the nature of God, he justified himself. And that was his error. But for all of us, when we're in that dark moment where the enemy is hitting us and hitting us, just as he did Job, that we would defend God and God's reputation. There is such a glory, such a grace that will come into our lives when we choose to do that. So as a finishing touch, I have another Letty Kalman quote. I had a poem of hers on Monday. The best things of life come out of wounding. Wheat is crushed before it becomes bread. Incense must be cast upon the fire before its odors are set free. The ground must be broken with the sharp plow before it is ready to receive the seed. It is the broken heart that pleases God. The sweetest joys in life are the fruits of sorrow. Human nature seems to need suffering to fit it for being a blessing to the world. When we suffer, the tendency is to turn inward. When we go through difficulty, the tendency is to think of self and to nurse self-pity. But 
when we allow these things as wheat, we become ready to become bread. When as incense we're put in the fire, our odor, this odor of this fragrance of life is, is set forth. And when the sharp plow turns up the soil of our soul, that it's actually being ready to receive the seed of the gospel at a greater level. That the blessing of Jesus can come through our life because of those difficulties. Instead of turning inward, rejoice, turn outward. The voice of pride will not rule us as the church. We belong to Jesus and the voice of the spirit is going to say, humble yourself. Receive that suffering with joy. Father, we thank you for the trials that we face. We thank you for the difficulties we are currently going through right now. And we rejoice. And we know that you will turn all these things that the enemy has meant for evil against us into good. We know it because you love us and we are called according to your purpose. Lord Jesus, we trust you this morning and we declare you as faithful and true. May we hear your voice today. It's in the precious name we pray, amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder is delivered live and streamed daily weekdays at 8.15 a.m. and weekends at 9.15 a.m. Join us at live.ellersley.com. We invite you to visit us at the beautiful Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado for a day, a week, or an entire season of gospel-centered spiritual training. Learn more at ellersley.com. Thanks for listening. Thank <laughs> you.